Forget frequently asked questions. Common sense. Common knowledge. Or Google. How about advice from a real genius? 95% of people in any profession are good enough to be qualified and licensed. 5% go above and beyond. They become very good at what they do. But only 0.1% are real geniuses. Richard Jacobs has made it his life's mission to find them for you. He hunts down and interviews geniuses in every field. Sleep science, cancer, stem cells, ketogenic diets, and more. Here come the geniuses. This is the Finding Genius Podcast with Richard Jacobs. Hello, this is Richard Jacobs with the Finding Genius Podcast, now part of the Finding Genius Foundation. I have Raja Deer. He's the co-founder and co-CEO of Seed Health, S-E-E-D. Raja is a life scientist entrepreneur. He's co-founder of Seed, as I mentioned, which is a venture-backed microbiome company that's pioneering the application of bacteria for both human and planetary health. Uh, he leads Seed's R&D, their academic collaborations, technology development, clinical trial design, etc. So, Raja, thank you for coming. Absolutely. But what got you interested in the microbiome and why did you create Seed? I've always had an interest, I think, in new fields of science, new fields of biology. When I was in high school, the genetics revolution was just going on and the human genome being sequencing for, sequenced for the first time. And I, I remember being so inspired at, at what those types of interdisciplinary pursuits in science really mean and how new technologies can enable rapid uh data generation at a whole population level at scale. And so obviously my interest in, you know, unlike the microbiome, which is the bacteria collection of microorganisms in and on the human body, the genome isn't something that, you know, is very easy or accessible or, or, or able to be changed. But the microbiome is something which is kind of called your accessory genome, right? Like it, it, it contributes a lot of different genes to the metabolism of you as an organism. And so when um, this field first started, I think 2006 was the first study I saw in this field on um, changing, transplanting the microbiome from one animal to another and their entire body composition phenotype changed. I remember thinking, hey, this is something that's really interesting. And I've been tracking the field ever since. And so, of course, since then, you know, the, the field's exploded. It's become so interdisciplinary. It's pulled researchers from all these different areas of science and medicine and technology and data. And usually when those things happen, it creates a very interesting uh, and fertile ground for innovation. So what's unique about what Seed does? Like, what was your premise going into this? Did you just want to make another, you know, probiotic that works well? Or, you know, what's different about it? Yeah, no, not at all. I mean, when, so we started the company in 2016. And at the time, most microbiome companies were both my, my co-founder and I are entrepreneurs and co-founder in, in technology and me in life science and food tech. And when we were looking at applications of microbes, right, like I wouldn't even consider ourselves a, a probiotics or even a microbiome company. We're really a, a microbial sciences company. And so we built our early team, our scientific team, our scientific advisory board, our academic collaborations, our institutional partners, really under one thesis, which was that as microbiome, as microbial sciences and research into microbes and their, and their application accelerated there would be a massive opportunity or a large categories, right? Like all, not just the gut, but anywhere in your body where there's microbes, which could be in your mouth, it could be on your skin, it could be vaginal microbes for women's health, it could be nasal, my, nasal microbiome. Obviously, it's very relevant now during a global pandemic, but it could be scalp microbiome. I mean, you name it, right? It's your, uh, there's, there's even bacteria that we're now finding in the airways. And so with, with this kind of gold rush of research, 
we really, really, we really saw an opportunity to build a company that was not a single platform, single technology company. So, you know, just typically those are raise a lot of um, private capital to focus on one category or one vertical or spin out of a out of a lab somewhere. But our vision was to to really build a company that was multi-platform or you know multi-technology across a platform um, in microbial sciences, and that and that's not just human health; it's also environmental, and so. We do think we haven't, you know, disclosed a lot of this stuff yet, but we do research in coral reefs, coral microbiome. We do research in plastic degradation, soil microbiome. You know, our honeybee microbiome research won multiple awards over the last two years. So, you you know, you're one of the rare people that's mentioned anything beyond the gut microbiome. Everyone seems to just focus on that only. And I know that at least the basic seed product seems to be just for gut. Are you going to make products for other microbiomes, like, you know, something to put on the skin and if we have like a skin dysbiosis or, you know, for women, yeah. will there be one coming out? Yes, we are. And and depending on where, you know, one of the other things that makes us unique is that if it's a consumer health product, then we kind of do like very, you know, rigorous life science style clinical assessment and deep mechanistic pursuits. And so the the kind of the, the scientific bar is quite high here. And then in some of our, some instances, microbes aren't actually approved to be a consumer health product like for treatment of UTI or for BV. And so we're actually, you know, or, or IBS. And so we actually filed regulatory filings for drug approval with the FDA and are going through FDA trials. And so we kind of, we do do that. And, and sometimes they're considered their products and other times they are a little bit lengthier, but they were, we're I think we're going about it the, with the, the long, playing the long game. Okay. You mind if we diverge just for a minute? You mentioned the honeybee microbiome. What did you do there and what did you find? So honeybee have a microbiome too. And the we isolated a lot of strains. Our, this was led by our chief scientist in our consumer division, Dr. Gregor Reed, um, as well as a, a collaborator and postdoc of his, Brendan Daisley. And uh, we put together cl- field trials and clinical trials, both in Canada and as well as in California. And there's another trial that's going on right now. But the premise is that there was the initial discovery that bacteria isolated from the hindgut of the honeybee can increase their resistance and survival rates to both exposure to pesticides, neonicotinoid pesticides, which are highly uh, addictive for bees and very disorienting, as well as a very nasty pathogen, which infects young honeybees in the first two or three days of life. And it's so infectious that if it's found in a hive, a a honeybee farmer or a farmer has to torch the entire hive and kill every bee so it doesn't spread to other hives in the community. And it's called uh, the American and and American foul brood disease here and European foul brood disease over in Europe. It's it's an infection. And so we, we got such interesting data back showing that when you actually administer these probiotics, either in a, a spray or in the form of a nutrient bio patty to these honeybees, you increase their survival dramatically, as well as increase their resilience and what's called detoxification of xenobiotics. So the conversion of these pesticides into you know secondary compounds that are not so toxic for the honeybee and and, and help in that detoxification process. And so yeah, that's that. In in short, you know we have uh, we finished up our field trials right now. We're doing a little bit more work. I, I don't think we have any plans to commercialize this. It's part of Seed Labs, which is our ecological arm. But we certainly hope to get this out to honeybee farmers in whatever capacity we can over the next few years. Well, I, yeah, I've heard of a company. Uh... It was a couple of years ago, I forget the name, but they were making probiotics for dogs, you know, like a powder you sprinkle on their food and they seem to be having good success. So, I mean, most creatures uh, have a microbiome and if, if uh, you treat them in such a way as to foster the right microbiome for them, they get healthier. So 
Makes sense. Yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm really, look, I, I want to also say that there's a lot of people that move too fast in this field, right? Like, like we're just starting to understand like what, I mean, dogs are such dogs are so different from the wild type organisms, right? Like from, from their wolf ancestors and what's optimal for one dog might not be for another. And so I think that like pro- probiotics are very, it's a buzzword for sure. And, and I, I think that the marketing is really far ahead of where a lot of the science is today. Now you can make condition or indication specific probiotics. So like if your dog is suffering from diarrhea, you can identify microbes that can help, you know, with lower stool hydration levels that allow for like a firmer stool as an example. Right. But there, that's not to say that like, it's a probiotic that you could give to every dog that would benefit it. And also, by the way, dogs have extremely potent and acidic stomach chambers, right? right? Like think about like how yeah, I've heard their pH is like one compared to ours is three. Yeah. I mean, there, I, I don't, I can't comment on the exact pH number of, of dogs, but of their stomach acid, but they're designed to eat a lot of raw meat, older meat. They can pulverize bone. Um, I mean, it's a very like microbes more like most probiotic microbes don't really have a chance. And so I'm, I'm a little skeptical of, of these, like, you know, are not skeptical, but I, I should say that, that I expect the evidence burden to be quite high in some of these auxiliary use cases. And I really encourage people to ask questions about the research before, you know, engaging with something that, that claims itself to be probiotic. Before we continue, I've been personally funding the Finding Genius podcast for four and a half years now, which has led to 2,700 plus interviews of clinicians, researchers, scientists, CEOs, and other amazing people who are working to advance science and improve our lives and our world. Even though this podcast gets 100,000 plus downloads a month, we need your help to reach hundreds of thousands more worldwide. Please visit FindingGeniusPodcast.com and click on Support Us. We have three levels of membership from 10 to $49 a month, including perks such as the ability to see ahead in our interview calendar and ask questions of upcoming guests, transcripts of podcasts you're interested in, the ability to request specific topics or guests, and more. Visit FindingGeniusPodcast.com and click Support Us today. Now back to the show. Oh, sure. Right. So what is in your formulation again for people, you know, the, the normal seed product, um, when I say that, I mean like, you know, I don't, either specifically or what makes the formulation you've made special, unique or useful? Like what, what kind of nuances have you found in the organisms you put into it? Yeah, a lot of things. So there's 24 different strains across 12 genera of bacteria. And so, um, it's the only, what's it's called, a, we, we developed what's called a functionally redundant microbial consortia. And so it's the only probiotic on the market that has multiple strains of the same species in the same product. It takes what's what we call a micro systems approach. In other words, we really, really care about mechanisms that these bacteria have, not just in the gut, but across different organ systems in the body. And so examples are, you know, strains which signal to the gut skin access that had a reduction in atopic dermatitis and gut barrier permeability, both in adults and in children. There's a, a strain that two published trials now on, on the reduction of cholesterol or maintenance and reduction in, in people with high cholesterol of cholesterol actually by assimilating cholesterol and preventing it from being resorbed uh, back up into the body. You know, like cholesterol is released and when you eat and then it's absorbed back up through the gastrointestinal tract and then it circulates into serum. And so this bacteria actually can use what's called bile salt hydrolase to slow that resorption. A number of a number of strains that work in multiple parameters of gastrointestinal and digestive health. And so, look, I, I don't think anyone has. I probably index in as as high of the like obsession about my diet, nutrition, exercise. You know, I have I have two 
super active wild dogs that make me run like five to six miles every single day just to keep up with them. Oh, and, wow. and I'm obsessive. I eat mostly a plant-based vegetable and fresh fish diet. So like, and even, and many of our scientists as well are like so obsessed with microbiome, but perfect or optimal digestion, the gastrointestinal tract is so easily perturbed that, you know, I think that like regularity or can stool consistency or intestinal transit time or time in the bathroom or like ease of expulsion and release, right. Are, are just very functional and relevant parameters about improvements in digestion. Forget about actually modifying your microbiome, but just like improving quality of life. And, and probably the most noticeable effect that we have is that this, this consortia that there, there's such potent propionate and acetate producers that they're cross-fed, they're ate, they're, that, that's picked up at, and, and cross-fed by other organisms. And so it's a very metabolic-based approach to, I think, re- regulation of the gastrointestinal tract and digestion, which are two, two actually separate things. And so mm. probably the people that the, you know, if, if for the, my recommendation for anyone that has suboptimal or wants improvement in digestion, and certainly like there's so many people that have non-specific GI complaints or digestive issues that are actually unaddressed by nutrition or pharmacology today. And so it's those people I think probably would benefit the most from what we've developed. But if you're interested in the microbiome or a, a user of probiotics, another thing that we we did to differentiate this is that we spent years developing what's called a precision release. Uh, you know, We engineered a precision delivery system for our bacteria. And so we actually showed in multiple iterations, improvements after the first whole wave of experiments were done, we had about 94% release of viable cells. And it was mostly towards the end of the small intestines. Now we have a hundred percent release and it's in the upper small intestines. So that's where most of the immune system is. And so just small things like that, right? Like that actually allow for the bacteria to be metabolically active. And by the way, we did all that at third-party testing and and third-party testing sites. And we picked 15 other medical grocery and pharmacy, including like the largest publicly known probiotic brands and went head to head on them. And, you know, we're, we're drafting a paper to be published on this right now, but there's not, not even one other probiotic had over 50% survivability. And most of them were, were, were not even active in the end of this, the chamber of the stomach. So it's, there, yeah, it's I was going to ask you, how did you get it to survive the stomach acid? Is that is that a common problem in the industry that is easily overcome or is it very difficult? I mean, it's not like it's the hardest problem, but then then you it needs sensitivity, right? Because the kind of like, I'm sure everyone's seen like delayed capsule release or acid resistant coating stuff. And everyone kind of talks about this stuff, but shockingly, very few of them actually do work that way, right? Or, or actually do have it. And then the ones that 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 were there had such little release because it completely missed the small intestines. It was so dense that it didn't reproducibly break down in time. And it basically was just staying aggregated as a hard tablet all the way through into the colon. And so that's why we call it a precision release is because you want it to survive stomach acid, but you don't want it to be so insulated that you don't have a release in the gastrointestinal tract where you want it until it's at the very end, right? Where you're, you're have a suboptimal release for where you want, like, if you want, if you want uh, an improvement in, in in your gut barrier or intestinal epithelia, forget about it, right? If it's not in the small intestines, it doesn't matter, right? So there's a lot of things that just are off the table if you're overshooting your target as well. And so sensitive, it's it's a very sensitive system, and it requires a very sensitive design to to release where you want it. So yeah, you know, what I noticed with with your product, I've used a lot of others, and if I eat a meal that's you know not a very heavy or something that doesn't make me feel very good. Other probiotics will ease the meal. It'll make a smoother transition to being, you know, 
hungry again and not like bloated or ugh. But what I noticed with seed is that it also it affects, you know, what goes on in the bathroom. It makes it very regular and very easy. And uh, I haven't thought about it much in the context of like emergency use in a meal, but I can tell you like you know, the, the midterm use or the long-term use is that it does make you like super regular, which I'm happy about. So it yeah. feels very effective. We, we've heard a lot of things like that. I mean, I, there's, I don't know. I mean, just I'll give my standard disclaimer that like I like not medical advice and some of these conditions we haven't explored in, in clinical trials ourselves, but I mean, people like, Regularity is a really big one. A lot of people with like a little bit more serious condition, like GI issues, like have, have found to, to be very high responders to this compared to, to other products. And then some people recently even were emailing us saying that after alcohol consumption, the next day, like alcohol, ethanol associated gastritis is very common. It's like the GI or the stomach pains associated with like that, that like most people would probably associate with like a hangover. Right. But that's like an, it's, it, it's, a, it's a, again, a very in, interconnected system. And so some people reported benefits in that as quickly as acutely after consumption, the morning after ethanol alcohol consumption. So there's a lot of different things that we don't even quite fully understand yet. I mean, we have done experiments on the gut barrier after ethanol and on recovery of the microbiome, but that's very different than what I'm talking about now, which is more of like the symptom side of it as well. Have you gotten any anecdotal uh, results from clients where they tell you their emotions change? Do they feel more relaxed or less anxious or it's all been just physical? You know, my bathroom habits yeah, are better. No, or... I, absolutely. But again, I, I will leave that completely up for people to try and report for themselves. I don't want to steer people one way or another on that because we do do a lot of research in the gut brain axis and it's a very, very serious field of science. And so it's not I, I don't want to represent that that's been, you know, that's, that's very, very frontier, so, frontier stuff, but certainly that feedback has come back to us and come back often. Yeah. I was just wondering if it did. And I noticed you call it a, a symbiotic. What, what's the difference between, I know prebiotic is food for bacteria, probiotic is bacteria themselves, but what is a symbiotic? Yeah. So there's two types of symbiotics. One's a synergistic symbiotic and one's a complementary symbiotic. And so a synergistic symbiotic is when you just pair your bacteria with something that they like to eat, but those are quite easy to make, right? Like if you just take like a little bit of inulin or sometimes um, a fructooligosaccharide or galactooligosaccharide or just the, the fibrous carbohydrate compounds that you typically find in, you know, plant, plant, starch and vegetable foods, you can induce the growth of a lot of different bacteria. And so that's like basically what's called a synergistic symbiotic. A complementary symbiotic is when you pair a prebiotic and a probiotic together and the prebiotic has its own effect, right? And, and we're, we went with that route when inventing this because for some people that have GI discomfort and, and have like sensitive GI systems, synergistic symbiotics are, probably aren't the best, right? Because let's say that the bacteria start getting metabolically active and, and eating the food and the small intestines and pumping out, you can have like tightness, stomach tightness, you can have gas production. For people that are on a FODMAPS diet, it can become extremely, cause a lot of GI distress. And also it's not really that clear, right? Like we just recommend that you get those types of prebiotics from your diet. Like there's very few people, unless you're eating a carnivore diet that would not get enough things just in the normal course of day-to-day -day for the bacteria in, in, in either your gut microbiome or within a, micro, a probiotic product like we've developed for them to get, get what's called a nutritional substrate. And so we, I, I think that those are a little bit earlier. Now, 
there's some synergistic symbiotics that are really cool and looking in the future, right? Like that only work on your one strain to give it a competitive advantage, but you typically see, you, you rarely see that today. Um, and that's going to be more like what we'll see in like five or 10 years where like, you know, you can find a bacteria that can only use this rare type, like the bacteria that you're delivering in your probiotic can only use this one rare type of carbohydrate found in like a marine algae. And then that's the prebiotic that you use. But most of that stuff doesn't exist today. Our prebiotic is a dense, dense, and very special polyphenol that's found closer to the skin and, and in the skin rinds of the pomegranate plant. And this is metabolized by gut bacteria into a compound called urolithin A. And urolithin A is a really interesting, what's called secondary metabolite. And so it's, it's not so much that it's just growing the bacteria, right? In the, in the case of a synergistic symbiotic, but it's actually providing a primary substrate as a, a again, it's a technical word, but all that means is a, a, a very, think of like a, like Pac-Man, right? Like a very big molecule that your bacteria can biotransform into a lot of very interesting and unique secondary metabolites that only gut bacteria have the ability to do, right? So urolithin A can only be metabolized from bacteria from their precursor, like this class of like elagic acid, elagitannins and pomegranate and polyphenolic extracts. So in this regard, we developed a complementary symbiotic. And so very, um, again, interesting and novel. There's not really any pe any people that are deeply exploring like secondary metabolism of gut bacteria and the, that, that, that develop probiotics today. Okay. How do you know what, what bacteria to include? I mean, what kind of modeling do you do to, do you have like an organoid where you model the gut, you know, for instance, and that's what you, you add the bacteria to? Like, how do you model this in vitro? Well, there's two parts to it. Well, I, I mean, the model really depends on your target, right? So I will, there's no model that's better than just generating strain specific data in your target population, like in a human trial, which we have, which we have lots of data for. So the first is that you just try to get good, clean human data. Mechanisms are sometimes hard to tease out in humans. And so for that, we turn to models and um, we have a lot of them. We use um, short chain fatty acid models for gut barrier. We look at what's called a CACO2 cell line. So it's uh, intestinal cells that we put our different compositions of bacteria and see if we can induce what's called something that's, that's called a tight junction protein expression. That just is the, the expression of the protein in your intestinal cells that repair or are responsible for the maintenance of the gut barrier. We do a NRF2 expression model, which looks at the response to oxidative stress and the response to inflammation. That was a very, very interesting model that was developed actually at MGH and um, looks, at, uh, looks, at, looks at it in a model organism of C. elegans. So there's a variety of models that we use depending on the research question, but ultimately you want to make sure that that translates into, uh, into something which is both uh, you know, effective and tolerated well by, by people as well. Yeah, that makes sense. So essentially you're, you're, you have cells in a dish, you add some bacteria to them, and you see what kind of metabolites they produce or how well they deal for, for those questions, stressors. Yeah, for, for microbiome modeling, we actually use what's called the simulator of the human intestinal microbial ecosystem. It's a very, very robust and interesting system developed by the, uh, a, a university in Belgium, mostly to model like drug, drug interactions. And what they do is they have multiple chambers that emulate the gastrointestinal tract. They actually have a human mucosa that's transplanted into it. And what they do is they transplant a human, like an FMT, they transplant a whole entire microbiome ecosystem into the colon chamber. And so you actually see exactly the metabolism that your organisms are having 
once they enter into that chamber in an entire resident ecosystem that has huge microbial uh, diversity, it has a high biomass, um, and it's a representative biomass actually of a human colonic and gut microbiome, right? So that part's really interesting because you're actually looking at data that you'd only be able to generate by doing like very, very invasive like biopsying and, and actually even then it would be hard to get all of this data in even a human trial. And so I, again, it really just depends on the research question when we're looking to model like effects on the microbiome like we did with our antibiotic study, like we did with our alcohol study, we use an entire microbial transplanted ecosystem like this. When we're trying to look at the effect on human cells, we try to do it directly in a cell model, which is direct interaction with the with the human cell itself. In some of your trials, or just anecdotally, do you do 16S or shotgun sequencing on you know people at work after they've taken seed for a period of time to see if the microbes stay in their in their body or if they're just there temporarily? Yeah, we don't we don't do 16S, and you and and no one it, it's not that it's not really that useful anymore to use 16S. So we do metagenomic sequencing. We we do untargeted metabolomics, which is actually more important because it looks at everything that the gut microbiome is producing, right? Every metabolite that's being made using mass spectrometry. So it's not even just which organisms are there, but you're looking at the entire metabolic output of that organism or of that ecosystem. In terms of colonization or long-term persistence, typically you'll find the organisms will disappear within six to 12 weeks of seizing consumption, but that's not a surprise, right? Like we know that a lot of these organisms are transient, which is why continuous consumption is so important. And that's actually like, in some ways, a good thing, right? Like if your microbiome long-term changes so quickly, we don't know that that's a good thing, right? Like we don't know what it's displacing. You don't know what you're removing from an individual's microbiome, which is very unique, right? You don't, and probably it means that the ecosystem itself has some vulnerabilities. And so typically, at least in, in, academic microbiome research, when you find that a community is, is in, unstable and responds rapidly um, and, and it has persistent shifts to changes in the environment, it usually is like a fragile ecosystem. And so it's not necessarily clear that you'd want to see long-term changes in a healthy person for a product like this, right? Like it, it, for other use cases, perhaps, but for a product like this, I don't know if that's necessarily what you'd want to see. Yeah. I just wonder if, you know, so if you stop taking seed you know, how long will it be till your gut returns to its previous state or will it be forever improved, hopefully, by taking it for a period of time? Yeah, I don't think that, you know, certainly like, so there's two parts to even understand, right? Like when you just take, it's not just your gut is improved and then it's over. The gut is a very long tube, right? It's a super long pipe. And so your gut microbiome or most of it is in that very tail end, right? In your colon. And so there's a lot of benefits of just the consumption of these bacteria that even if you completely changed your gut microbiome, you wouldn't get, right? Like the signaling of them with your immune system, which is mostly in your small intestines, or like the gut barrier effects. And actually those are dependent on the passage, the transience of the organisms actually moving from your mouth through your anus. And so there's kind of two parts to it, right? Like it, 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 I don't want to overrepresent that it's that simple, which is like, oh, if your gut microbiome just was different or if it was just better, you it would go away. Like people that take probiotics and benefit from him don't necessarily have to have a disrupted or a bad or a gut microbiome, which is abnormal, if that makes sense. Yeah, yeah, I understand. Do you know if any of the companies, including you guys, again, are looking at after you stop, if the microbiome is permanently changed in the gut or does it slowly go back to the previous state? I know it depends on a lot of factors. It depends on a lot of factors. It depends on if you, 
if you have health or disease, if you have GI conditions, what your diet is, what drugs you take, depends on your lifestyle, how much sleep you get. It depends on what antibiotics you took as a child. Um, it depends on what your, what your microbiome was at when you were 24 to 36 months old. It depends on your age. Older people have a, have a dramatic shift. Actually, a new paper just came out that says that there's a dramatic shift that happens in healthy people that are age well versus people that age poorly that tend to resemble more of their microbiome from a younger age. And so we think that some of the organisms that are protective when you're younger in your native microbiome might not be so protective when you're older. You know, it's, it's so early to comment on it. And it's such a complex field that I really want your listeners to know that it's not so simple as like, hey, I just took a gut test. Here's what it said. I have a healthy microbiome or I have an unhealthy microbiome and this is what I need to do to fix it because that's not how the, the people that spend their whole careers in this field really think about it. I understand. So what's ahead over the next year or two? What are you guys working on that's, that's coming soon? Well, from like the environmental side, we're announcing our coral microbiome research project soon, which is really cool. It's, um, you know, we have collaborators in Brazil, Australia, the Red Sea, Hawaii, that basically found microbes in the coral microbiome that are protective against bleaching events from changes in the ocean pH and changes in ocean acidification and, and temperature changes because of global warming. And so we're replicating these experiments now and publishing that data. We have prospective papers coming out. We have ethicists at Harvard that we're engaging with and in, in how philosophically we should think about heavy issues like human-induced environmental change and the responsibility and the ethical responsibility to intervene um, and how to do so safely and uh, research collaborations in some of the like largest out-of-ocean coral facilities and tanks at places like Biosphere and the Woods Hole Institute. And so a lot of cool stuff, cool announcements coming there. We're uh, working with plastic degrading bacteria from that, that we actually are doing in partnership with the Department of Defense and Department of Energy and sending it up into space with MIT and, and um, the Jet Propulsion Lab and NASA and a couple months, uh, which we'll announce shortly. We're, launch- we're developing a product for children, for pediatrics, that's been in, in R&D for the last year and a half or two, which keep uh, everyone should stay tuned on that if you have children or if that's relevant for you, because we'll have that trial finished up and have that product out hopefully in the next three to six months. And um, a lot of big publications and research going on in, in oral microbiome, skin microbiome, and um, continuing research in women's health. And so... A lot of, lot of different tracks, a lot of different things in the, in the, what do you call it? Irons in the fire, so to speak. And so if, if, you're, if anyone listening is interested in either the human or the environmental applications, um, just, you know, drop us your email at seed.com or check out our, we only have one product on the market today. It's, it's, you know, we're very focused, few products, <laughs> a high focus type of company. And so check us out at seed.com and we have a very, very, engaged and active customer service and scientific uh, customer ser- scientific care team. So if anyone has any, has any questions or wants to try every, try the product and drop us a line if, if it, how, how you felt on it or just let us know. Yeah, that's excellent. And like I said, I'm not, you know, just shilling for you guys, but, you know, I get a lot of really interesting emails that have good content and customer service seems to be good and, and the product works. So I'm pretty happy and, uh, you know, listeners can check it out if they want. It's up to them. But uh, Raja, anything else that you want me to ask you that I left out or you think that's good? I think that's great. Yeah. I mean, well, I would just end with kind of like a inspirational note, like on the future of tech, which is like, I continue to be blown away every day when new papers come out on the, the importance and relevance of this field. And so I think it's one of those like 
thesis, like 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 category defining areas of research that'll that'll touch every aspect of our health over the next decade. And so, with again, with that responsibility, with, or you know, with that promise comes the responsibility to not oversell where we are today. And so, I'm you know the the research and gut brain access and the ability to now use your microbiome to predict if you have major depressive disorder just blindly from a sample right of your stool. Um, and from your blood, from a new research group that was that that uh, paper that just came out in Science from a, an academic institute a couple months ago, and for all the major ailments like what we should eat, cardiovascular disease, neurodegenerative disease. I mean, if you microbes are implicated in so many areas of how we age and how we maintain our health, that it's going to require a little bit of patience. But it truly is a frontier science and it is a frontier technology field. And so I, there's a, there's a ton of books on this that kind of capture the magic, I think, and you know, once you go down that rabbit hole, it's hard to really to really see the world the same way. And so people that if this is really speaking to someone, I, I encourage you to go through that process and learn about the part of you that's not human because it's it's a rabbit hole. I went down in 2006 that I've never fully, fully recovered from. Yeah, when I look at my dogs now, sometimes I think it's weird. They're like they're this holobionts. They're, they're, they have their own microbiomes and everything, too. And I look at them and they're just my dog, but they're also all these other things just like yeah. we are. So it's just interesting. Absolutely. Well, very good, Rasha. Thank you for coming and talking about Seed. I really appreciate it. Thanks for having me. I really appreciate it. If you like this podcast, please click the link in the description to subscribe and review us on iTunes. You've been listening to the Finding Genius Podcast with Richard Jacobs. If you like what you hear, be sure to review and subscribe to the Finding Genius Podcast on iTunes or wherever you listen to podcasts. And want to be smarter than everybody else? Become a premium member at FindingGeniusPodcast.com. This podcast is for information only. No advice of any kind is being given. Any action you take or don't take as a result of listening is your sole responsibility. Consult professionals when advice is needed.